Morning, Salt City. <clears throat> so one of the things that we will often hear in our culture is something like, be true to yourself. And so this is just the air we breathe, that there's this understanding that the way to be happy is to sort of look inside yourself at your own desires and to say, that's who I really am. And then to find your happiness by pursuing whatever you desire. And yet there's sort of this counterbalance to that in our experience, which is that the more we live to ourselves, for ourselves, I think this is self-evidently true, the more depressed we become. And so when we look inside of ourselves, we look at our desires, we become more and more self-focused. And so also in our culture, we see this epidemic of loneliness and depression and isolation. And so those who have kind of given thought to this reality have kind of looked beyond this idea of going inside of yourself to find happiness and have actually proposed the idea of getting out of yourself to find happiness. And so one such example of that is this uh, woman who writes for Psychology Today. Her name's Wendy Lustbader. And she actually wrote an article called Getting Out of Yourself. And she's talking about the role of suffering in getting us out of ourselves. And this is what she says. The heat of a devastating experience can transform us. Shifting engagement in living such that something new results. In the worst of times, if we force ourselves to step outside the airless enclosure of our unhappiness, we usually find the fresh life awaiting us. I am not talking about something grand or heroic. It can be as small as an ordinary gesture, like asking a neighbor with a sick husband if she needs anything at the grocery store. Picking up a quart of milk on behalf of somebody else can become a deep encouragement. An otherwise useless day acquires the heft of purpose. Isn't that a great image that she gives at the beginning of that quote? She says that when we step outside the airless enclosure of ourselves, have you ever experienced that? Like on the third Netflix movie of the day, just like, I would do anything to get outside of my apartment. <laughs> anything. We experience, when we're self-focused, in reality, the air sucked out of our lives. And what Wendy is saying is that it's better to actually suffer and be forced outside of yourself than it is to live in that place. In reality, what she's saying, we need not more of ourselves, but to give ourselves away. And what the book of Acts has been baiting us to do is actually to live outside of ourselves. The thing that this psychologist is missing is that we don't actually have the willpower to do it. So into that space, this is what the Bible has been saying to us overall in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here's what happened. Jesus promised the early church that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, that they would get out of the airless enclosure of themselves and that they would go to the world, that they had a great purpose, a ministry, a person to serve, Jesus Christ. But what we see in Acts up to this point is that they've stayed pretty local with their ministry. They've been stepping out a little bit, but it's as the pressure gets turned up that they really start to do the work of ministry that God has called them to. So here's what we're going to see in the text this morning is that we as Christians are freed for ministry through personal pain. It's actually a combination of the Holy Spirit inside of us and our circumstances, painful circumstances, that paradoxically push us out into the freedom of living for a great purpose for Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at three reasons Jesus will spare us no pain to give us a ministry. Three reasons Jesus will spare us no pain to give us a ministry. The first one is the joy of ministry. Secondly, the mess of ministry. And thirdly, the beauty of ministry. So the joy of ministry first. We're looking at Acts chapter 8. There's a lot of text. And so I'm just going to be reading a few verses at a time. Acts chapter 8, we're looking at verses 4 through 5. And then we're skipping ahead to verse 8. Acts chapter 8, 4 through 5, and then verse 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. Okay, so what we're going to be doing is actually we're going to be following the example of one person's life. His journey from becoming more and more self-focused to more and more on mission with Jesus. And so like I said, the Holy Spirit has come in power. Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises that his Holy Spirit will come and make his people witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up, preaches this message to 3,000 people, and they get saved, and they get baptized, and there's much joy. People form into small groups, and they begin to witness to their neighbors. Then we see in Acts chapter 3 and 4, there's both preaching publicly and there's persecution. In other words, the heat starts to get turned up, but it, it's kind of on a small scale. Just a few apostles are getting thrown in prison and they're, for the most part, being released from prison. There's not widespread persecution against the church. Then we see in Acts chapter 5 and 6 that there's actually conflict within the church. So you have the deal with Ananias and Sapphira, and then you also have uh, the, the church, uh, I forgot, I'm going to move on. All right, <laughs> Acts chapter 7 and 8. Then you see the death of Stephen, and then what really happens is the persecution is super turned up. So there's widespread persecution. You guys remember that last week, correct? Stephen boldly preaches the gospel of Jesus, and he's actually stoned 
publicly and he goes down like a champ. He goes down like Jesus. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, there is widespread persecution against the church. Just before this text, the Apostle Paul is breathing out threats against the church. It's not just the leaders in the church who are being persecuted. It's everyone in the church. People are being dragged out of their homes. And Philip's place in that entire journey is kind of unique. So Philip, we see at the beginning of Acts, he's sort of an invisible part of the church. He's coming to church, he's part of the community, but he has no visible place of leadership. Then in Acts chapter 6, he becomes a leader in the church. There's this crisis that happens where there's this certain segment of widows in the church that are being neglected. Philip is one of the people that the apostles lay their hands on, and he has a position of leadership. And what we see happen to him is this complete transformation when persecution begins to take place. And the persecution is very personal for Philip because Stephen was his direct leader. Just before this text, it says that at Stephen's funeral, there was weeping and loud lamentation. The word for loud there literally is mega. It's mega lamentation. It was a very sad event. So you can imagine Philip at his leader, Stephen's funeral, weeping that this man died for Jesus. But instead of allowing that to turn him in on himself, Philip is instead inspired by what he saw in this leader. And he turns outward in a way that he never has before. And we actually see in this text, Philip becomes a cross-cultural missionary. The first one that we see in the book of Acts. He's the one who takes the gospel to the Samaritans, which is significant because what we know about Samaritans, the Apostle John said in his gospel, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was incredible prejudice. Philip goes from an attender of the church to a cross-cultural missionary because he saw in this leader that the pathway to joy was not by looking inside of yourself and deciding what you desire, but it was in laying down your life for the benefit of others. He saw it in Stephen, and then he went to Samaria, preached the gospel, and he experienced it in person. Isn't that true? It is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a great blessing in having a great purpose to live for and becoming a servant of that purpose and seeing other people experience joy. Actually, maybe the most joyful way for us to live is in forgetting about ourselves. I was reminded of this this week. I was reading a kid's book to my son, Luke. It's called The Quilt Maker's Gift. 
And it's about this king, and this king was all about himself. He was just hoarding all of this wealth for himself. And he was asking his subjects to continually give him gifts. But what you see in the book is that no matter how many gifts, no matter how much wealth he accumulated, no matter how much people were serving him, he was never happy. But there was this one woman in his kingdom, and this woman made quilts for poor people in the kingdom, for people who were in need. And so this king became fixated on this woman. He wanted her to make him a quilt. But she refused, defiantly refused, and said, my quilts are only for the poor. And so the king actually persecutes her, puts her in prison, he makes her stand on a rock in the middle of the ocean, and still she won't relent, she won't give him the quilt that he desires. And he recognizes in her that she has something that he doesn't have. And he says, how can I get a quilt? And he said, she says to him, you have to give away everything that you have to get the quilt. And so slowly what the king does, he has so much accumulated wealth that it actually takes him a really long time to give away the everything that he has. And so he actually goes to all the subjects in his kingdom and he starts giving away everything that he has one by one until the point where he has completely impoverished himself. And he comes to this woman, this quilt maker, and for the first time, she sees him without a frown on his face. He's filled with joy. She says, now you're ready for the quilt. She gives him the quilt. And he understands for the first time that it's more blessed for him to give than receive. And so he actually becomes sort of the delivery boy for this quilt-making woman. He stays impoverished. He doesn't even want the quilt because he sees that the very purpose of his life is to take the quilt and to give it to people in need. He finds his joy not in what he has, but in giving away what he has. See, the joy of ministry, the reason that Jesus will bring pain and suffering into our lives as Christians is not because he's punishing us. It's actually because he wants us to have a deeper joy. He wants us to have the maturity to turn our pain into our ministry. To actually allow the most painful circumstances of our lives to push us out of ourselves and into the lives of those around us. What Acts is saying is actually something quite profound. It's that the Holy Spirit is not enough for you to get out of yourself. You're too stubborn. So am I. It actually took pain in addition to the power of the Holy Spirit to push the early church out of themselves to the end of the earth. So Jesus has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of pain. 
to push us out, to experience the joy of ministry. Okay, we'll step out. We begin to serve others. We begin to see other people come to know Jesus as we preach the gospel, as we're freed from ourselves. But we actually also run into the mess of ministry. So Philip's experienced pain, gone out preaching the word, seeing tons of people come to know Jesus, but he also experiences some failure. Acts chapter 8, 18 through 23, picks up the story. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Okay, so we get introduced to this character named Simon. So Simon had been a magician in Samaria. And he was actually such a good magician that the Samaritans were worshiping him as God. And Philip comes in, and he is also performing miracles. Except they're miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, so they're way better than anything that Simon could ever do. He's also simultaneously preaching the gospel to people. So what happens is, all of these Samaritans, as well as Simon, profess faith in Jesus. And they're all baptized. But at this point in church history, it was really hard for people to believe that Samaritans came to know Jesus because of the incredible prejudice against them. So Philip calls in the big guns. He gets a couple apostles to come up to Samaria to verify that these people had in fact come to know Jesus. And you can imagine... Philip's feeling pretty good at this point. Like he's the first cross-cultural missionary and he not only saw sort of the ordinary people of Samaria come to know Jesus, but he actually saw Simon come to know Jesus. And so what happens is the apostles come up to verify that in fact, Samaritans had come to know Jesus. And so they lay their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me take a little aside here for a second. Some people have used this text as a proof text to say that the way that anyone in the Christian church receives the Holy Spirit is that first they believe in Jesus and then at a later time, someone in authority in the church lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit, which is then evidenced by them being able to speak in tongues. What the text is actually teaching us is not sort of a two-stage Christianity. Although in this passage, there is a sort of two-stage Christianity. But the reason for that is a historical reason. 
It's because the Holy Spirit's presence in the Samaritans was verifying to the apostles and the Christian church that the message of the gospel had in fact gone outside of Jerusalem. So this is not a prescription of what we should do as Christians. It's actually a description of what happened in the early church. Okay? So again, back to the story. The apostles show up and they lay hands on people. And these people are receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. And Simon looks at what they just did. He remembers the power that he had. And he offers the apostles money for the ability to do what they've done. And you can imagine the scene, right? Simon has supposedly given his life to Jesus. Philip's sort of standing off to the side. The apostles are checking his work. And the most notable and prominent person that he had led to Jesus, it turns out, doesn't understand the message of Jesus at all. Philip had even baptized him. There's got to be some embarrassment on Philip's part. And in fact, the apostles come on really strongly against Simon. Do you notice that? They, have, they say, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Why do they come on so strongly? Because what's at stake in this moment, in this public moment, is the very heart of the gospel. Simon had an understanding of the gospel message that it was something that could be bought and sold. He thought that he could use his power, his credentials, and his money to earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something we want to clarify often at Salt City is that we believe that the gospel and subsequently the gift of the Holy Spirit are unearned gifts. We believe in grace. You don't have to earn your salvation because your salvation has been earned by Jesus Christ. He lived the life you could never live in your place. He died the death that you deserve to die on the cross and he was risen again to new life to give you new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. What's not right about Simon is that he's trying to earn something that is absolutely free. And the apostles come on strongly because they're there to protect the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of God's grace. And it's actually the very freedom of God's grace that makes this whole Christianity thing, and ministry in particular, messy. You know, Philip might have felt a little embarrassed thinking, oh, I baptized somebody who wasn't actually a Christian. But what it really points to is that this movement of the gospel is completely outside of our control. 
Do you know that you can't save anybody? In ministry, don't we often put pressure on ourselves? Like, if I just had the right words, I could win my coworker to Jesus. Or if I was just a little bit nicer, kinder, displayed Jesus more in my life, maybe this person would come to church with me. Have you ever thought that maybe the whole thing's out of your control? That the pressure's actually off of you? And that ministry, in a similar way that you have received your salvation, is not something that you have to earn, but it's actually a free gift of God. I think all of us, we have this incredible desire in every area of our life, and ministry is no exception, to be in control. Here's, a, here's an area I see that in my life. After going from zero to four kids, that's another story, but after my life went completely out of control, right? I've got five kids. I really started to love to clean out the garage. Okay? It's weird. It's such a dad thing, right? I never understood why my dad spent so much time in the yard and outside and all that. Now I do. And I, but here's what happens when I clean out the garage. I clear everything out of the garage. And I've got this squeegee that I use on the floor. And I put like soap on the floor and I scrub the floor and I spray the floor down and I take everything. I clean the cobwebs off and I want that place to be absolutely perfect. Why? I'm a control freak. And here's the problem. I didn't know this until I went from zero to four kids, now I have five kids, but I can't control the people in my life. Have you noticed that? You can't control the people in your life. You can't control what they say. You can't control what they think. You can't control what they believe in. Particularly in ministry, my wife and I were just laughing about this the other day. We periodically will share the gospel with our kids, ask them where we're at with Jesus. And we were asking three of our kids kind of where they're at with Jesus if they wanted to trust in Jesus one night. And you expect, you know, pastors, kids, whatever. Yeah, I want to believe in Jesus. Let's pray the prayer. You get on your knees, whatever. And all three of them basically in unison just said, no. <laughs> like, well, I think that's a closed door. Okay. I don't know how to how to move on from that. <laughs> Just a straight no. Well, doesn't that point to the fact, guys, this whole ministry thing, it's a mess. It's completely out of our control. Here's what I want us to do as a church. Embrace the mess. Embrace the mess. If God wanted to, he could save every person on the world, in the world, instantaneously. But the way he chooses to exercise his control is through patience and grace, not wishing that any person on planet earth would perish, but giving people time to respond to his invitation of salvation. Here's the thing. We have a unique opportunity in our church, in particular, to embrace the mess. You know why? We're reaching college students, right? 
which means what we're saying is basically like a quarter of our church is just going to be a brand new group of people every four years. And that means people are going to be cussing during their testimonies, talking about drugs and whatever else they've talked about during testimonies. And do you know what we say? Yes. That's why we came here. The more you get involved in ministry, the more out of control your life will feel. And the more joy you'll feel in the midst of that. Because God has designed us as believers to go into the hard places with the message of his grace. It's a mess because the gospel's for broken people. Which leads us into the last point, which is the beauty of ministry. In order to keep on going in our faith, we have to continually be reminded of the end game. We have to continually be reminded of what God is leading us toward. We see this in the life of Philip. Acts chapter 8, 27 through 31. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So here's what happens with uh, Philip. He preaches to Simon. He's in Samaria. He actually returns to Jerusalem. This time, he's tasted the joy of cross-cultural ministry. He senses the Holy Spirit calling him to leave Jerusalem again and go to the specific place on this road between Gaza and Jerusalem. And he doesn't need an incredible crisis to do it anymore because his heart's been softened by God. And so he actually, with very little prompting, leaves. And he goes down to this road and he sees this African man riding in a chariot back toward Ethiopia, away from Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit continues to prompt him, like, get closer. And so you can see, Philip, this is a funny scene, right? This is a very wealthy man, very nice chariot. Think of like kind of a big parade of people. And Philip is running. Men at this time didn't run. He's just kind of doing a very undignified thing. And he's running next to the chariot, right? And this is the most bottom-shelf evangelistic opportunity maybe in the whole Bible, right? This, he, he runs up next to the chariot, and this guy is reading the Bible out loud. And Philip's just like, what you reading? Right? And the guy's like, oh, I was just actually wondering what this text was about. And Philip... In that moment, 
has an unbelievable opportunity, an opportunity that would actually lead to the gospel going to Africa for the first time. Notice all that Philip does is he responds to what God is doing. This isn't a strategy. There was no meeting about this. This is a movement of God's spirit in Philip's life. And he has this unbelievable opportunity to share the gospel. Have you ever thought maybe the reason that you aren't seeing regular opportunities to share the gospel in your life is actually not because you aren't trying, but it's because you're trying too hard. You know, I don't meet very many people in our church who don't have a desire to share the gospel. As I talk to a lot of you guys, I think you have this really strong desire to share the gospel that has actually led to guilt in your life, where you actually just go into work every day and you just feel kind of defeated. You're just like, man, it's, I've worked here for six months or a year and I haven't really been sharing the message of Jesus with the people around me. And I know that I've set a bad example in some ways. And so maybe I'm just kind of disqualified from sharing the gospel. And you don't know the next step to take. Okay, let me encourage you with this. It's not about you putting in a bunch of effort. Being led by the Holy Spirit is not passivity, meaning doing nothing, but it's also not activity. It's actually something completely different. It's similar to water skiing. Okay, let me explain this. I don't know if you guys have water skied, but I started water skiing when I was six years old. All right. Here's what happens when you water ski, when you're first learning to water ski. I was brought back to this this week, right? You sit in the water. You got the boat over there. You are not capable of water skiing, right? You have to have a boat to be able to water ski. So you're sitting there in the water, and you're... You're active, right? Like you're ready. You got to bend the knees. You got to keep your arms straight. And then here's what you got to do. You got to trust the boat to pull you up. And so the mistake that everyone makes when they're beginning to water ski is you try to pull yourself up. And so instead of keeping your arms straight and your knees bent, you kind of do this. And then you fall. And what you have to learn is that the boat does the work. You do your part, the boat does its part, and you learn this balance between activity and passivity. Guys, what if it's similar in sharing the gospel? What if we're doing this? Like, you're just trying too hard. And we need to go back to this basic of trusting the Holy Spirit. Even his timing. His plan, his purpose. What if it's about just praying and asking God for opportunities? What if Jesus actually doesn't want you to lay out the bridge diagram on a napkin every day at lunch? <laughs> but what if he wants you over time to take advantage of the opportunities that he has? What might happen?
This is what might happen. Acts 8, 35 through 38. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. That is not possible by human effort alone. You can't create those type of opportunities. You can't manufacture it. You can't do it by human effort. That's the beautiful thing about it. What would it look like if we trusted God this week? If we looked at the book of Acts and we said, you know what? Maybe the Holy Spirit who lived in Philip is living in me. And he wants to take me on this path of transforming me by the painful experiences that I've had in the past, seeing the joy of ministry, being out of control, kind of embracing the mess, and taking advantage of the opportunities that God puts in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the freedom of your grace. Thank you that our salvation has been outside of our control and that even our ministry is outside of our control. Would you help us to depend on you? God, maybe our mission this morning is that We've tried to do ministry in our own effort, and we've failed. And we're asking that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us opportunities, that you would teach us when not to speak and when to speak, and that we would begin to see things that are clearly from you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.